Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thank you so much for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Bob St. John, who is an engineer with over 30 years of experience in the industry. He's won numerous Grammy Awards, and the albums that he's worked on have had sales in excess of 50 million units. So Bob has definitely worked on some big projects. He's worked with artists such as Duran Duran, Collective Soul, Extreme, and a whole bunch more. And in this conversation, we have a great chat all about getting pro results from your home studio. Bob works in a home studio. Yes, he's worked in some bigger environments as well, but he has a really interesting perspective on how home studios actually can help you create better sounding results than going to some of these bigger facilities. And a lot of people would think it would be the opposite because you'd have tons of gear and you know these massive spaces to play with. But Bob argues that there's some real benefits to being in a home environment that you just can't get at a big studio, regardless of how fancy the equipment is. So Bob shares some great tips there, and he also shares some great tips on budget microphones that you can use in a home environment that aren't going to break the bank, but that are going to get you great results too. So um, that's definitely a fun part of the conversation as well. And then because he's got such a great history of working with some big bands like Extreme and Collective Soul, we also get into some stories about working with those artists and what it's like behind the scenes there. So I think that you're going to get a lot of great information from this episode. So let's just jump right into it. Bob St. John, thank you so much for being on the Master Your Mix podcast. How's it going? Awesome. Awesome, Mike. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. For people who might not be familiar with you or who you are, what you do, and how you got into all this stuff, can you give us that, that story? Basic background. Um, if, if, you know, you say, why should you know Bob St. John? Well, if you've heard, you know, Extreme's More Than Words song, which was um, an inescapable in the summer of 1990. Love that track. It, it actually still is. Um, uh, that, and you'd be familiar with my work. But also, I've, you know, um, worked with uh, Duran Duran. I did two albums with them. If you've heard uh, White Lines or Electric Barbarella, those are definitely my mixes. As well as Collective Soul, I did two albums with them, Dosage and Blender. And uh, I've been in Florida for... Almost 25 years now, probably longer. I've lost track. Um, and uh, I've worked with a lot of Latin artists here as well, with uh, Ricardo Hono, Ricky Martin, um, um, Olga Tenon, um, and I've done a lot of um, um, Christian music in Spanish as well. Um, many artists from Puerto Rico. Also, um, Black Guayaba, who I have a Grammy with, uh, Basilos, two Grammys with, and La Secta, who's also a big band in Puerto Rico. Um, the majority of my work now is mixing. When I moved here, I decided I wanted to stop, stop recording. Um, you know, seven and eight years working with Extreme and with Duran Duran, with Collective Soul, I was just burned out on working the studio hours. And to be honest, I liked the glory job of mixing. You know, it's, it's like, it's like delivering the baby without having to go through delivery. <laughs> so, <laughs> without the pain, you know, and, and the thing is, you know, it's one of those things where you, you get to be at the far end of a creative process. Um, to me, it's an honor to be able to mix stuff with clients. And that has been the, pretty much about 80% of my work. Before I moved from Boston, because I'm from Boston originally, um, I started doing mastering back then too, mainly because I didn't like the choices that were available. And we're talking like, like 90. 
394-ish, where you know not everybody could just set up a computer and decide they're a mastering engineer. So that comprises usually about 20% of my work every year. Um, the, rest of the, the rest of the time I do producing, and I've been doing more and more recording here at home. Probably for, that's for the past 10 years. Um, I learned the hard way. Um, I just wanted to do this. I wanted to do this since I was a kid. That's why I always say I'm just lucky to get up and come downstairs and make music every day. Um, and <laughs> I taught myself how to do this by just bouncing back between an, a Kai open reel recorder and a cassette machine with DBX noise reduction. And I had a four-channel Radio Shack mixer that was uh, ran on 9-volt batteries. Um, I have uh, technical expertise, so I built my own mixer at that point, just so I could learn how to oh, do wow. this. I mean, one thing's for sure, you, you know, you're never at a loss to find friends who are musicians and want to make recordings. <laughs> and that was how I started learning. Um, I was going to college to, uh, to work in broadcasting um, because I was told early on that, well, you couldn't make any money being a recording engineer. My shop teacher told me uh, you, I wanted to fix TVs for a living. That's what he thought I should do. Um, that wouldn't have worked out for me, I think, and <laughs> since we throw them away now. Uh, and all still in the back of my mind, I still wanted to work with music. I come from a family of musicians. I'm a musician as well. And my workaround to that was, well, I could be near tech. Like, you know, I was a DJ. And I could be near knobs and music. And this way, at least I was close to music. It wasn't until I was in college that a friend of mine that I was recording um, brought me to a studio. It was a 16-track studio. And you know, it's one of those things like love at first sight. If you've ever felt it, you'd know it. And you could feel it in your heart. And you felt like your feet were glued to the floor. And this is where you wanted to live forever. I know it sounds totally cliche. But, but that was the, that I was the <laughs> sensation I had. And I'm like, oh, my God. And there I was in my second semester in college. That summer... I saved money and some friends helped me and uh, I bought a Tascam 8-track and um, that was the beginning for me. That would be um, 82. I still have the bill of sale for it. It was $3,200, eight channels of half-inch Tascam with DBX noise reduction. Um, I didn't have money for a console. There's one I found like in a heap of uh, old equipment in college that I took home, refurbished, and I was off and running from there. Um, I had a studio, but, you know, having a lot of friends who are musicians and owning a studio and having to pay bills don't all um, go together. I wanted to learn, so I recorded a lot of people, and I made some money, but after about a year, I realized that this was not a money-making proposition. I moved the equipment back to my parents' house where I was living and uh, started working at the 24-track studio that was across the street from mine. I didn't realize that within, you know, because I had clients, within like a month, I had a set of keys to the studio. And I could come and go whenever I wanted. And by the way, studio time then was $300 a day. Um, I didn't make any money. I just wanted to learn. And so I was doing live sound with bands in an effort to get them to, like, you guys want to record something? We could go in the studio and record. And they're like, yeah, and I'll be your engineer. So that was how I got gigs. That's great. I loved doing live sound, but not as much as working in the studio. But that's a, that's a really interesting approach, too. And I think more people should try that out of, like, doing the live sound, getting that experience. And it, it's such a great way, if you are trying to make a living at this, to, to get in touch with bands and have them learn a little bit more about working with you and, mm -hmm. and you know, learn who you are and all that kind of stuff. And then that's, that's an easier pitch to transition them into the studio and get them as clients. 
And also, when you work with a band closely, you become part of their sound. You become part of them. And you have already established a rapport with them before you actually go into a studio. I mean, even if it was 300 a day, it's still costing money for people. And you want to make sure you give them something for it. Um, that, that was how I got started. And, you know, I had to learn the hard way with everything. You know, I read back then, it was like Mix Magazine you'd read or... DB, a recording engineer, producer, and I absorbed that stuff like a sponge. Um, I was working a day job then, so I would go to my day job at 7 o'clock. I'd leave at 3.30, and I'd drive the 45 minutes to where the studio was, and I would work all night. I would just, uh, I would, not kidding, I'd bring a face cloth and clean myself up in the car and shave on the way to work in my car. <laughs> and I did that for a couple of years. Uh, eventually, the studio got sold to a larger studio, which is where I met Phil Green, who was a mentor to me, who owned the studio, Normandy Sound, in Rhode Island. Phil's still a very good friend. And he was the first real engineer I met. Like, I had read interviews with him because, you know, um, Phil's got many major credits, but, you know, he he did some jazz albums with Steve Smith. He, uh, of course, did all the New Kids on the Block records. And this guy's a brilliant engineer, and he still is to this day. And he took me under his wing because he could see how what a passion I had for it. Um, and I started working at that studio there, which is basically is bringing all of, all of my work there. And I was essentially on staff there. That was the first time I actually had a job. And I remember the first paycheck I got because I was bringing my clients in there. I was still working my day job at this point. But I, it was like I had worked like a, a weekend, and the studio manager handed me a check for $720. And I just stared at it for the longest time. And I'm like, I think I could do this. I didn't make that much money a week at my job. I was a tech making um, missile subassembly oscillators, you know. Um, and <laughs> I remember, I loved my day job. And I remember when I wanted to quit, they said, well, we'll let you be part-time. They really wanted me to stay. So I was part-time for like four or five months. I worked like three days a week. And but then I realized all I really wanted to do was was recording all the time. So I spent more time meeting bands and getting people to come in and record. You know, I didn't get a lot of jobs from the studios. I had to show up with my own gigs. Not a lot I got that I didn't have to get the hard way. And, but, you know, Normandy was the first time I used a real console. We used that. I mean, in my 8-track studio, I had a Ramsa, you know, 16-channel with quite possibly the worst EQ you've ever heard. And, uh, you know... <laughs> You, when you're young like that and you listen to records, um, you wonder how they did that. And, you know, I was always a shy kid, so I was never going to be the guy to walk into the studio and go, hey, give me a job. You know, I'll empty baskets because I had no idea what it entailed. At that time, there weren't that many schools teaching recording. So you had to do this the hard way. Um, you know, I was very fortunate to have Phil, who's, you know, who's like an audio encyclopedia, who taught me about great microphones, mic cables, and stuff that we never really thought of. He had an MCI 600 that he had fitted with, I think, I think he had like 16 channels of John Hardy mic pre's in it, and he had some Trident mic pre's in it, and he had a really great tech there. I think it was Bob Windsor was the guy's name who took care of all that stuff. And, you know, I learned how to use the automation on it. And this is like, you know, this is ancient history. Because the stuff we take for granted now, like, you know, you want another track, you just open up another track. Here was 24 tracks. Yeah. <laughs> that's what you're getting, you know. Um, and, you know, you weren't going to be doing a lot of bouncing reductions unless you absolutely had to because it was analog. 
that console was the first automated console I worked on. Until then, I did it the old-fashioned way, marking it with tape and marker on the board. I mean, you know, that's an education all by itself, to be honest. Um, And, you know, when I teach younger guys about this, and I do a lot of training now for people, I always go backwards to things that I don't think are being taught enough. If you you ever read any of the uh, Beatles books, the, the Mark Lewison book or the big, huge, thick one that looks like a real one inch tape, you'll always see them talking about doing reductions. And this is something I come down on clients for still. It's like, do not send me 40 tracks of background vocals. I have other things to do in your mix. And if I have to spend an hour coming up with a balance for this, you've actually cut into the amount of time I've allotted to do the job. You get a better mix if you give me better tracks. And um, Mm -hmm. I learned how to do that very early on because I wanted more tracks. Clients wanted more tracks. And as time goes by, you do develop your own sound based on what you did. Um, Ultimately, I think I was at Normandy for a couple of years, and uh, I was still, you know, working working with live bands, still doing that to get gigs. Um, I had met Nuno from Extreme when he was 16 years old, and uh, we were working with a band in Boston that he was in right before Extreme called Sinful. The guy who was in the band Sinful was this guy, um, Joannes, who sat next to me in American government in high school. And pretty much every job, you name me a job, and it will always, you can always basically trace a line back to four people I met in my life. Hmm. Jose's one of them, Jesse Gonzalez, who was tied in with all the Christian musicians with another one, Steve Kowalczyk, who, um, who actually uh, helped me buy my machine. And, you know, uh, Phil Adams, who was another mentor to me. Those people were tied to every job I've ever had. You know, I met Nuno through Jose and met Extreme through Nuno, for instance. Um, you know, I remember when Nuno was trying to decide, should I quit Sinful, who were on the verge of a deal, or you go with Extreme, who was a well-known band in Boston, who originally they wanted two guitar players in the band, and Nuno wasn't going to have any of that. They don't, with Nuno, you don't need two guitar players anyhow. And he showed them this. And actually, once they started rehearsing, they're like, yeah, we don't need another guitar player. And uh, I did a lot of demos with them before they got their deal. Probably about 30 songs we did. We did some of them at the original 24-track studio I worked at, some of them at Normandy, and then later the studio Cortland, which is now gone. And the people who ran the studio ended up becoming their managers and got them their record deal with A&M. And we did their first record um, with Mac at that studio, as well as most of Extreme 2. Um and that studio was another p- very fertile ground for me to learn in. It was a had a funky little control room, but a really nice recording space that was ambient, and uh, and that that got me up and running from there. Um, I worked at Cortland for a while before I just started doing more and more freelance work that you know took me out of the country, whether it was going to London or Australia, um, and, and that was and that's you know a very condensed version of how I got to to basically that point, <laughs> how I got to where I am now. We can save that, but you know, that's that's where I came from. Yeah, for sure. No, I love that, and uh, it's definitely interesting. That like I love hearing how you can really um, link all of the jobs that you've done to these four people. And I think that that Mm -hmm. really just goes to show the value or the importance of networking and how, you know, when you work on networking and you find these right, the right people, it can really help spawn this career. So, you know, it it does show that even if you're kind of a shy, quiet person, you still need to like get to know people. And, and, you know, there's a lot of, uh, if you stick me with musicians, I won't shut up. But, you know, if we're going to talk about football, I'm in trouble. 
Yeah, so, okay. for sure. <laughs> well, one thing I wanted to ask you about, though, you were talking earlier about how um, you've worked in a lot of different genres of music as well. And and I find that really interesting, too, when people have, uh, you know, you said you worked in like you've worked in rock and metal and Christian mm-hmm. and Latin and pop and all sorts of stuff. Um, when it comes to your career, was that a conscious decision to have such diversity in the types of projects that you did? Or was that kind of just a necessity because you needed to make a living and you just took on whatever came your way? I've always been a chameleon like that. And, you know, my influences as an engineer, you know, Mike Shipley, Bob Clearmountain, um, Hugh Padgham, um, Bill Schnee. And, you know, those things, those people, I always looked at their versatility and how they brought their own sound to everything, but it and it sounded like them, but it was unique to the artist, if that makes much sense. Mm-hmm. So I always fashion myself after that. And, you know, to me, listening to some of those records that those guys have done, you start to understand what it means to be an engineer. And you don't just focus on this one thing. And there are some guys who are very good at one genre, but I like to be able to spread spread my wings with it. There's very little I won't do. Like, I don't really enjoy doing reggaeton, which is very big here, because I don't think I do it well. And also, I just don't have a passion for it. Mm-hmm. So when people call me with a job like that, I'll refer them to somebody who I know is going to dig their teeth into it. Yeah. I think I think it's actually a crime to to take a job on that you shouldn't be doing, you know, especially when you realize how much love people put into something. And that, you know, you're just going to do it because you're looking for a cash grab. I mean, yeah, I understand that we're in the music business and this is all about survival in a lot of ways. But I still think you need to honor the artist, honor the music and what they're trying to do. Totally. Um, but I've done pretty much pretty much everything. Um, you know, I've done some hip hop and rap. And it's a band I worked with that I met through Nuno called uh, Top Choice Click. And the uh, guy who was the DJ producer his name was mike fields and we just called him force i think he calls himself force field now um that guy was an integral part of me making a metamorphosis from a guy who did rock records to being able to do so many things with it having not worked with mike i don't think i ever could have worked with duran duran anthony rester who was a business partner for a while also would say the same thing for us two really lame white guys this guy had a major effect on us. And he would show up at the studio with, you know, the, the classic, classic hip-hop thing with big crate of you know, albums. And he was always, he'd just pull up like, you know, eight bars of something and we put it in a sampler and just watch how he would assemble this. And so Mike taught me about, you know, how to use lo-fi stuff and within a mix. And those things came in handy for both Anthony and I later because, you know, the Duran Duran gig actually came about through... Um, Anthony was in Dale Bozio's band, Missing Persons, and Warren Cucurillo at that point was in Duran Duran, and Dale wanted Warren to do some um, writing for her. So she had Anthony send him some loops and grooves he was working on. Warren heard that and said, hey, these are really cool. Do you mix? And Anthony said, yeah, I do. Knowing that, you know, we work on that stuff together. He said, well, you know, we're having trouble mixing this record. At that time, it was the Duran Duran Thank You album. And, uh, so they sent us a song to do. Anthony said, listen, I got a gig. I got a gig for us, you know? And uh, I said, cool. So we managed to get a studio to front us time for like two days so we could go in the studio. 
And we did the mix, and uh, it took us a couple days, but we nailed it. And then, you know, a week later, we're in London working on the whole record. Hmm. Um, and it's, that's just how it can happen. So it's important, it's important to try to absorb as much from people as you can. Mike was there, you know, on a totally organic level, and that was how I learned how to do that. That's a skill I still use to this day, and I thank him for it all the time. And uh, Anthony does too. Well, you know, Top Choice Click, they had a song, I think, in the Posse movie soundtrack. I know I worked on that. Um, but, you know, eventually, you know, through through just you know, what happens in the record business, they, you know, they broke up. But, you know, the legacy of what I learned in that job has stayed with me. I actually still use it. And I'm, before that, if you said to me, you know, you want to work on hip-hop or rap, I'm like, ah, that's not music. But... You know, I always say to people in every way, keep an open mind. If you say you don't work on jazz, try and work with real jazz musicians and see what it's like. Um, you know, I love recording jazz. And, mm. you know, it's fun being a part of that creative process with people and fun being the person who's actually documenting the moment. As recording engineers, that's what we do. You know, we're actually taking an oral picture. It's very much like taking a picture because all the same things apply. You only show the viewer, in this case, the listener, the picture you want to show them, mm -hmm. you know, nobody needs to know what was going on in the studio at the time. So you help paint that picture of the song for a listener. I always remind engineers and artists that we don't make music for other artists. If, if we want to sell it, we make music for people who don't understand it. It's magical. It comes out of the speakers. Um, music is a very odd medium because you can't hold it. You can't look at it. You can only listen to it. You can buy it, but wouldn't, you know, now you can stream it. <laughs> but if you bought it on a CD, you can only hold the vessel that you can play it on, but you can't actually touch it. So it's an intangible. It's, it's you know, why, it, you know, intangibles are just dangerous if you're selling them because that means anybody can listen to it and they don't have to pay you for it. And we know yeah. what that's done for us in this business <laughs> at this point, you know. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you, you brought up an interesting point that I, I was curious to ask you about anyway, which was that you, you said you kind of have your own sound, but at the end of the day, all of the tracks that you work on, they still sound like the artist. And mm -hmm. I think that's a, that's a really important lesson for people to, to understand. Um, and one artist in particular that you've worked with that uh, is it, Collective Soul. And and I actually got to tour with them about 15 years ago. And uh, so I you know, spent a couple months with those guys on the road. Um, but one thing about that band that always caught me off guard when I saw them live was that, to me, they always sounded like they were such a heavy band. Like, they mm -hmm. to me, like... You know, when I saw them live, I was like, man, this this band can sound like Nickelback or something like that. You know, yeah, like they're yeah, like absolutely. They, they, they're like total metalheads, but but on all of their records, I've always found them to sound a little poppier. And, and and I think the part of that is like the drum tones, like they, you know, they're not as extreme and sampled and all that stuff as like a Nickelback right. band, right? Right, um, right? There might still be samples, but it is it sounds a lot more natural. Um so I was curious to get to learn a little bit more about working with those guys and learn more about like you know, your thoughts on that? Like, do you feel like the same, the same way that they are a heavy band or was there ever any conversations about the sound of the band and, and you know, what, what to go for when it comes to mixing? It's interesting because nobody in the band, we ever sat down and said, this is what it needs to sound like. You know, um, a lot of times people hire me for a job because they're just looking for whatever my take is on it. Mm -hmm. I came about that job in an interesting way. They were working at Criteria. I had been living here for probably two, a year I was still living in West Palm Beach, which is where I moved when I first moved from Boston. And uh, 
the engineer who was working on the session that was on um, on uh, dosage was uh, Chris Carroll, and Chris actually assisted on Extreme Four, and we spent uh, six months at Criteria. I know it sounds crazy to even say we spent that long doing a record, but we were there for six months doing Extreme Four. Um, and Chris was one of the assistants. He ends up um, staying a Criteria, and you know he ends up engineering the Collective Soul record. And he mentioned to Ed that you know Bob St. John's living in town, and Ed's like, "Oh yeah, I like Nuno's Schizophonic album." And you know, I'm thinking, did anybody even hear that record? So. <laughs> <laughs> I, he, you know, uh, he had his manager call my manager at that time was Bob Ring in LA. And, uh, and that's how the gig came about. And, you know, Ed just said, just do whatever you feel with this. So, um, the first song I mixed for dosage was, uh, heavy nice. and like that whole, like oscillating, vibrating guitar thing. I actually came up with that using a delay line and a gate. You know, uh, that was typically Ross's sound, but it wasn't in the track like that. And that stayed through because I did uh, I did the initial mix on that. I think Tom Alert Algae did a mix on it and used that same thing in the mix. I had recorded it all on the 48-track digital because that's what we were using back then. And that's how I came across that job. But even if you listen to the mixes I did on those two Collective Soul albums, every song has its own complexion. It's its own thing. And that's just part of my work ethic. Um, no two songs need to sound exactly the same unless musically they're the same. So I let every song shine on its own. Yeah, you do start with similar drum treatments, but you know, in the case of them, they're, they're always, you know, have different snare sounds on every song. So you work off of that to start with. Um, you know, and Ed's a great songwriter. His creative process is, is, different from anybody else. I know when we were in Atlanta mixing um, mixing Dosage, uh, that song that was on Varsity Blues, was it Run? Was that the song? Uh, can't remember which one that was. Yeah, but yeah. yeah I, 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 and uh, I watched him write that song in front of me, um, eating a White Castle burger on his knee. And, you know, he's like playing the song and he's going through the first couple chord progressions. And he's like, he says, Mr. Bob, he says, what do you think? I said, Sounds like Lennon. I'm not a big Lennon fan. He's like, hey, maybe I'm onto something. And in 20 minutes, he wrote the song. We were recording it later, just like that. Wow. Um, he's, the guy's a brilliant songwriter. Um, he says he can be a little bit obtuse to work with sometimes. He's, he's, you've worked with him. He's a little mercurial, to say the least. Um, and, you know, being part of that creative process to me is an honor, and it's just it's a turn-on. You just get to sit there and be part of something you know nowadays you do records like this and i've done stuff like la secta i did a song with them uh, uh last year and you know we they did the song i finished the mix and it's on the radio a week later you know that's something that we didn't have before the internet existed it would be months and months you know you'd finish an album and you know you'd be excited you'd show it to your friends and they're like when's it coming out i'm like well it's february yeah it'll be out in you know in like august the, the wait was brutal. We don't, we don't have to deal with that so much anymore. To come back to what you said about Collective Soul, every song, I, I'm, and this is how I approach all mixes, is you listen to a song, and it's like, it's like being a lawyer in court defending somebody. You have to cite an example. Cite an example in your mind. If it's, if it's you know, got a bunch of things that sounds like Pink Floyd, then that's the direction we're going to be heading in, in it with. When you get that in your head, and, and this applies to anything, 
even if it's something else that you did, then you've got a good starting point to jump off from. It doesn't mean you have to go there all the time, but always when I listen to a song, I assess, number one, when I get the files, I assess the level of difficulty, so I need to know how much time I have to lay out for this, and what does it sound like? And then, because I deal with a lot of music in Spanish, and I've got rudimentary Spanish skills, um, I'll say to the client, what is this about? Because you can translate it, but metaphors don't translate directly from Spanish to English, especially in songwriting. And then from there, you could, you've got your impression of it. You've got what's the song about, which will also affect what it should sound like. And then you say to the client, you know, what's this about? And then what were you thinking it should sound like? Now, if it sounds like a Pink Floyd song and, you know, they say it wants to sound like Nickelback, you know, <laughs> you've got to go with it, you know. And by the way, I happen to like Nickelback. I don't understand why people hate them so much. <laughs> um, I, I love them too. I don't get it. They're great songs. Even if you don't, I think you have to admire their mixes because they sound yeah, massive. they're freaking great. <laughs> what else is there to say? <laughs> you know, and I don't like a lot of stuff, but it is really good. I, I talk about it often on the podcast, but I had uh, I had their engineer Chris Baseford on mm-hmm. my podcast earlier, and and he had one of my favorite quotes. He was he was talking about how when it comes to Nickelback, he mixes them. He, he called them cartoon mixes, and it's just like <laughs> they're not they're not meant to sound natural. They're meant to be different and out, out of this world. So, um, you know, I, I love that. So much of audio is like CG. It, it, totally. It's, and you know, is it is it real? Is it fake? It, you know, you look at we look at magnificent creations. I think movies are the most incredible, um, incredible amalgam of all the arts. Everything is inside of that. And you know, whether it's storytelling or cinematography or audio or or things that people invent, it looks so real. It's actually in your mind as well. That can't be real. And we do that with audio. And, you know, mm-hmm. I've definitely mixed records like Nickelback where it needs to sound like that. And, you know, you go see bands play live and that's what it sounds like. You got to remember that a lot of what we're doing, especially with rock music, is we're trying to take something that exists in an electric environment. And, and we're going to um, basically reduce it down to this point where you can actually put it in your ears. So it needs to feel massive, even though it's coming out of you know, a set of AirPods. Um, and that's where that comes from. I, I had a um, musician that I'm working on, like, doing like 14 songs with. And, you know, we got into an argument about the bottom snare mic. Well, I don't like the bottom snare mic personally, um, you know, but I'm doing my best to be open-minded. That's what I always encourage young people, always take whatever people say. And I'm like, you know, basically I had to like, suck it up so we're talking about the bottom snare mic and i showed him this project that i worked on the band was um shad that i produced recorded everything right here and uh and yeah it's it's got that nickelback-esque thing for it because it sounds like a rock band like a modern rock band if you want to sound like a zeppelin record that's cool but you actually now have to go backwards you know zeppelin didn't use four tracks of guitars you know and the part of why that music speaks and the drums specifically in that presence is, is it's simple because the music was simple. You had space for drums. You didn't have to close mic them. You had a, you know, a maniac beast of a drummer too. And what happens is modern rock music is more of a confection that you're putting a bunch of things together and people crave that conformity. It's, it's, they want to hear that. So you have to find a way to do that. When I showed him this, he's like, well, that doesn't sound good. That, that doesn't even sound natural. I'm like, well, that's the point. And I was being very stubborn with him. And then he said, but I want this to sound different. 
after like an hour of, of, of haranguing on this, and I'm like, I said, you know what? You actually said the one thing I actually needed to hear. And I can be stubborn sometimes. I've learned not to be. And I, and I always, anybody I've trained, I've always said, don't be stubborn. It's, it's, it's a, the classic thing I say to them before they go out to the big world. And I said, if it gets back to me that somebody asked you for something and you were being a dick about it, I'm going to find you and kick your ass. Because as engineers, we are facilitators. It's not our music. And, you know, if, if, you know, a guitar player says, I really want my lead tone to sound like it's being played through an old toilet paper tube, then we need to find a way to do it. And also a way to do it in such a way that it won't be offensive for the listener. Um, and that's our job. You know, um, I, I always try to keep that in mind. Um, when you, you know, I do a couple hundred mixes a year and, you know, with clients, they're going to call you back and say, well, this is what we're looking for. Um, you know, lately, and I've been using um, Session Wire, which is the most amazing thing I've seen invented in a long time. I don't know if you've seen it, but... Yeah, I use it all the time. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. And because I very rarely have people here, and this allows them to be here. I actually can, I can insult them right here over the camera, too. So <laughs> we can have a good time as if we're here. They just don't get any of the good coffee I've got. And... When I've sent somebody a mix, by the time I've done the second revision, that is my impression of the music. Now, from there, they're going to say, well, I wasn't thinking of the vocal quite like that. Or, you know, then I'm going to do it and I'm going to do my best to get it within the context of what I know, number one, will work for them and also will work when it leaves this environment, when it goes to mastering or when you're just listening to it on a pair of AirPods. That's our responsibility as engineers and not to say, well, I don't hear it like that. You know, mm. I know I've heard clients who worked with producers, went through a series of mixes, and then the band was unhappy. And they said, well, that's not really what we're looking for. And the producer says, well, that's the way I hear it. Yeah. Um, that's how you lose gigs, by the way. So. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but it brings up an interesting conversation, which is that, you know, y there's... There's always two sides of the coin here where it's like, on one hand, as the engineer, you have your set of tools that you like to work with and you have a specific vision for the sound. But then there's the artist's vision for the sound. And you're I, I do think it's really important to make sure that you're having conversations with artists ahead of time to mm -hmm. try to get on the same page. Otherwise, yeah, you might spend you know a couple of days working on a mix and the band comes back and, oh, we hate it. It sounds nothing like what we wanted. And then you've wasted two days. So, you know, yeah. I, I do think it, it is really important to have that vision for it. Um, and uh, I, I kind of liked what you said there about just how you listen to a, you listen to a track, and if it sounds like a Pink Floyd thing, then maybe that's the direction you lean in. Um, I think that I, I, I always tell my students that it's really important to have an end goal in mind as you start a mix. Like you need to know where you want it to go in order to make those decisions to to get the sound you want. Um, and so I think it's cool, just like hearing a song and being able to say, okay, I think it sounds like this kind of track. Let's maybe lean mm -hmm. in that direction. Exactly. Um, and, and maybe, and, and when you have that vision, you should communicate it with the artist to make sure that they're cool with that too, because they, yeah. they might not like that artist, right? They might not like Pink Floyd or whatever. Uh, exactly. And you know, when you're writing a song, this is where you're going with it. And so you've got an ideal in your mind. It doesn't have to be that because, you know, so much of what we do and what we hear, it morphs and changes as you go through it. Um, and you've always got to be ready to roll with that and not get attached to things. It's, I think that's one of the biggest problems I see with other engineers. I, uh, you know, they get attached to something being a certain way, and now it can only be that way. And you end up ruffling a lot of feathers. I mean, I've managed to, nearly all of my clients have worked with me 10 plus years. You know, I, I think 
the, for me at this point in my career, the most important thing is coming up with more unique clients, people who haven't worked with me before. But, you know, you maintain longevity with clients because you become part of their creative process. And they also know how they picture it in their head is what's going to come out the bare minimum. Most of the time, it's better than that. And, you know, to me, a, a, you know, a good day is if somebody calls me up so happy that they're crying. I know it sounds like a cliche, but it happens because you help them realize their vision. And when you've actually moved somebody to that point, they'll always work with you. Um, it's amusing when they go work with somebody else and listen, I, I, loyalty is a big deal to me, but if you feel like you need something else, then go try and do it with somebody else. And I end up usually fixing it in some way. Yeah. Um, and I don't mind, but you know, sometimes you need to go away from those things that are familiar to realize that, well, what I had over there was actually, was actually already okay. Totally. I think that that's, that's a great point to, to make for sure. Awesome. Um, well, another band that I wanted to ask you about was Extreme, and obviously we've talked about Nuno and, and how you've got connected with mm -hmm. them. Um, obviously, they're a band that is very guitar driven, and uh, mm -hmm. and you know that's that's the thing people love about that band. Um, so I'm curious to get your tips on recording great guitar tones and and how to make a band like that sound the way they do. I mean, Nuno is a special case for me because we basically grew up together. I mean, he's maybe about five or six years younger than me, and he has a definite idea of what he's looking for, but I helped him define those sounds. Again, as an engineer, when you can give somebody what they want and, and, and with the minimum amount of pain to get there, you really have a client for life, and especially when people are young like that. Um, with Nuno, he, we don't have to speak when we've worked together. Um, he very rarely would, you know, complain about any tone that I got for him. You know, whether when we were doing uh, Extreme 3, we set up a couple of amps, we tried them with a couple of cabs, and we had an idea what we were looking for. We listened to some, like, vague references, but I mean vague. I mean, I think we listened to, like, you know, Dawkins and uh, Van Halen, just so you get an idea what level of saturation you're looking gotcha. for in presence. And with Nuno... You've got about half an hour to get a sound, and then we're going to record. So you have to have your <laughs> shit together. Um, I already knew what I was going to use, what mics I was going to use. I put them up. I moved them. It wasn't a lot of this, like, hours and hours of crap. If I spent an hour getting the sounds on Extreme 3, I'd be surprised. Um, I, because, you know, part of the deal is, as an engineer, you have to know what mics are going to work for what sound you're looking for. Mm -hmm. You know, if you've got a really saturated sound and you don't want to hear it fuzzing in your ear, then you go get an 87. If it's not as saturated, then it's a 57 or a combination thereof. Um, you know, my go-tos on guitar are always the same. They haven't changed a heck of a lot. Um, I'll use an 87 most of the time up close, a 57 if I'm looking for something that's a little brighter, and uh, an Arroyer, like a, I think it's 121 that's uh, or, or the R10 that I think those are some of the best guitar mics there are. Uh, matter of fact, that when people say they want to buy a mic and they want to spend a little money, I always tell them to get the Royer because honestly, the, you'd have to be a special sort of idiot to find a way to make it not sound good. <laughs> That's the easiest mic in the world to use. You know, eighty sevens work great, but they're expensive. You know, are you talking about the, uh, the if, if you had to choose between the R ten or the one twenty one, would you go one twenty one? Um, yeah, I go with the one twenty one. It's prettier. Yeah, but they're both they're both great mics. Well, the R10s know. are just really affordable. So you know, for for people in the home recording world who maybe don't want to spend a ton of money, like it's a good way to get into that that Royer world. There's there's a whole pile of really great mics available that just aren't expensive. That the Beta that Shure kick mic, the fifty two A, I love that thing. 
and you know I I would be lost without it. <laughs> uh, I look back to the old days of having to record drums. I got a forty four twenty one inside, and needed a forty seven outside. But you know, I had the luxury of you know I'm working on an you know eighty seventy eight in a studio where you know you had all of those options available. You know, um, like a lot of people, I'm sure listen to your podcast. I record at home now. That's that's where I've been. I, the last time I was in a studio recording, at least four years. You know, I think it was a criteria. And it was really wonderful to use the big room, but, you know, they moved that awesome, awesome Neve that I got refurbished into Studio C, which is just a very dry room. The records we grew up listening to, they were all done in Studio C. The Eagles albums, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Clapton, those were all in Studio C, which is just a dry room. Studio A is a massive space that you could put a whole orchestra in. And I like that space, but they stuck a 96-input SSL in that room. And it's a 9,000J. And I love SSLs, but I like 4,000s, not as much as 9,000s. So when I go there to record, I bring all my preamps with me. The Millennia, the John Hardys are the ones I like to use. Um, when uh, and, and we were mentioning a recording at home, and I got off the topic, I'm sorry. Good. Yeah, we were, we were just talking about... Um well, we were talking about getting guitar tones, and you were talking about your go-to mics, and then we then we got on to yes. a tangent about like budget mics that sound great, mm-hmm. which which I, I think sound is a great conversation for people as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, that's a, sorry. Thank you for okay. getting me that back there. Um, you know, I I use um, inexpensive mics with good preamps. I think if you've got a skimp on something, get a decent preamp. You know, people ask me that all the time. I always point them to the John Hardy, the M1, because I personally like it. I use the M1 and the and the Millennia. Um, HV3. When I want a color, I'll have the M1. When I want no color, I'll use the HV3. And, you know, between those, I can get any color that I want. But there's so many things that are available now that when I was learning how to record, listen, I, you know, it was a stretch for me to buy a 421. <laughs> and, and you know, that was like the nicest mic I had at the time. I had some electro voice mic I found in the trash in college that was actually, it was a 660 seven i think or 666 it was a nice mic it was used for you know announcing and i used that for vocals because that's all i had you know people tend to think that you need to buy the best of everything but there's so many good things if you can read enough reviews you'll find them in there you know i had a warm audio 47 tube that sounded great and you know for a mic that isn't that expensive you get the tube sound out of it, and you know you just like the thing you need to be aware of with inexpensive mics is you have to be gentle with them. They're not roadworthy. Um, you know they're, they're not meant for your cats to bat around on the floor, or your kids to use for a hammer. <laughs> and um, that's just so many options available right now. Yeah, yeah, I love it, and and that's a really good point about the budget mics. Like I think for most people in the home studio world, you know the, those budget options they they give people a affordable entry point to get a pretty classic sounding mm-hmm. sound. And yeah, to your point, you know, maybe, maybe those mics can't handle the wear and tear of those mics, a lot, uh, you know, being banged around a lot, but for most people in a home studio, they're, you know, they're going to be pretty gentle with it. If you're running a commercial facility, maybe you need something a little bit more durable, but yeah, listen, I, I don't, I, I don't have an 87. I've got a Peluso 87 that I love, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, uh, and that's a great sounding mic and it doesn't cost you $4,000. I, I honestly, I can't justify $4,000 for an 87. <laughs> it's a lot of money. Absolutely. And it's not the most versatile mic. I, I think the most versatile mic I own is this one here. This is a Heiserman um, H47. It costs a fortune, but I love the thing. And I can put it in front of nearly anything. I don't have a lot of mics here 
that are like that, yep. you know? And so I always say to people, find one good mic you like, that Warm Audio 47. I loved that thing, mm. you know? Um, because you find that one thing and you can use it on a lot of stuff. Um, that's the thing is you don't have to own a lot of gear to be able to do this. Totally. You know? Um, I've got recordings on four tracks of drums that people did in their house that sound better than stuff that was done in a studio. Why? Because they could take their time and get the performance they want. When you're in the studio and you're on the clock and it's, you know, upwards of 200 an hour between the studio and the engineer, it, unless you're used to that pressure or you're independently wealthy, um, it's not a comfortable situation to be in. And then if you put that into a band situation, it's even harder because you need people to be able to do their parts. Some people just don't handle, um, you know, the, the red light fever so mm -hmm. well when they know they're recording. Um, you know, we did Extreme 2, you know, uh, Paul Gary, who was a great drummer, he would clam up when he knew we were doing final takes. So what we did with Extreme 2, myself, Nuno, Gary, and Pat, is we knew we were, we kept in mind that we were going to make these demos like they were going to be a finished record. But we didn't tell Paul. And he played great tracks. Those are some of his best playing. And when we were done, and we had done the bass, the vocals, we'd done all the demos for that. Um, you know, we went to L.A. and uh, and Michael Wagner was going to be producing it. And ultimately, Michael just mixed the record and, and allowed us to do the thing we were doing all the time, all together anyhow, which was a, a, a great a pleasure and an honor um he listened to it and he said what do you guys need me to mix this because it sounded like it was done because we did it that way um in la we recut the guitars and i think we cut two new songs when we were there and you know people always need to realize that you don't know when you're recording something that this could be the definitive version of the song you know records that guys like me grew up with like like zeppelin van halen these things are moments frozen in time they're not contrived and the way you get around stuff being contrived is you just record it in the most relaxed way that you can. You know, uh, that's, you know, we, we were, we were, you know, picking on Nickelback. Well, that's very contrived. That's what it's actually supposed to be. You know, um, the engineer calling it cartoon music is, is actually, and um, that's not a, that's not an insult at all. Like I said, I love it. Um, you know, but it's a confection. It's something that actually doesn't exist in nature. Led Zeppelin, that exists in nature. Van Halen, ACDC, those things, if you sat in a rehearsal room and watched them play it, it would sound like that. Totally. Nickelback, I don't think. But, you know? but like you said, it's it's kind of like uh, CGI and movies and stuff like that, right? Sometimes sometimes the goal is to make something that has a, a larger-than-life feel, and, and that's that's why yes. you do it. And so... Yes. Um, it, it, it's a I love, and I love doing that myself. I, I, I make no bones about it. When somebody says they want this to sound like something, I say, is that where we're going? Yeah, that's where we're yeah. going. Then we go in that direction. Yeah. You know? I love it. And I, I love that you brought up the idea of like home studios being able to actually provide better results because people are comfortable and, you know, they can get, get good sounds. And, uh, you know, that's obviously something that I think a lot of people who get into the home studio world, they, they have this fear of like, oh, I'll never be able to get great sounds out of my studio because I don't have you know, X gear or, you know, massive space and all that, mm -hmm. but, but you really can get better results. And sometimes, yeah, like you said, like when someone's comfortable, you get a better performance, you get more of that intimacy or, or, you know, they, they let loose because they're not thinking about the money they're spending, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that's, that's what it is. You get to create things. And that's the thing I've noticed definitely in the past 10 years, when people send me music, it's good music with good performances. That's stuff that I wouldn't be able to give them if they were sitting here with me paying me a hundred bucks an hour to babysit them. Mm -hmm. This is stuff they can do at home 
and they can take their time and get it right. And, you know, many friends, I've, you know, helped them pick out mics, helped them pick out mic preamps, told them how to do things, what not to do. You know, and the, the thing I still say to people, and we just get, you want to spend some money, get some good mic preamps, get a couple of good mics. Um, don't get wrapped up in the minutiae, meaning don't go getting EQs and compressors and all this stuff that you think you need. Number one, because you don't know how to use it. And I'm not being rude, but, you know, you need to understand these basic things. I don't expect musicians <laughs> to understand, you know, compression ratio, attack and release. The confusing things if you don't know what they do. And if you start cranking those knobs, you're going to hand me a hunk of crap that I'm going to have to try to unravel in some way. And the best way to do it is if you need to EQ it and you want to do it on your workstation and then send it to me flat so I can at least start with that. That's the only the only problem I ever run into is sometimes people get a little excited with a plugin and I'll end up with a file that's been rendered with it. And then I've got to try to figure out how do I undo I, I, I love that you brought that up because I, I was going to ask you about that because we had talked about budget mics and I was going to ask if like you felt that the budget outboard gear could be just as just as good. But uh, but mm -hmm. I think that you bring up a really good topic there of like, you know, understanding, knowing what you know, knowing your strengths and weaknesses and just like sometimes just leaving it pretty flat and just getting the mic in and leaving it at that and then leaving it up to someone else who maybe understands it better. Or if you're the person who's going to try to mix it like still leaving the flexibility for yourself to learn the tool to get it right. Mm -hmm. I mean, listen, the stuff that I record, I do not EQ. Um, I will. I've got a couple of compressors I like here. I've got a 165, which is my workhorse. I've got an LA-4. And then that, that Bluey I told you about earlier. Mm -hmm. um, I will track through them, meaning it never leaves the analog domain until it goes through that device. Um, you have to pay attention. You, go, you can end up with too much. Like the 165 is a very trusted piece of equipment that you know I've been using since I was 20. Um, and... I'll use that for tracking vocals. The LA-4, I'll use for tracking guitars sometimes. I like the sound that comes from it. You know, plugins are awesome. And the tools that we have now, because I came from a place where, you know, you had one reverb, you had to make it work, <laughs> um, are magnificent. And plugins can definitely get pretty much 90% of what the hardware is. Uh, I My personal superstition and... I've definitely seen it in action because I've had, you know, LA3s here and listened to the plugin. The plugin kind of sounds like it, you know. Mm. And I, my feeling is the more transformers and the more valves in a piece of equipment, the, the less likely you're going to get a really close to it in a plugin, although most of them are great. And then, you know, I, I just, if something's got a lot of tubes in it, I'm generally not going to use the plugin because I'd rather have the piece of hardware, um, which. I think there's a metaphysical thing that happens when you start whipping electrons around coils <laughs> and, and valves. I could be wrong, you know. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that sounds great and stuff that I just can't afford. I'm never going to have a Shadow Hills compressor here, for instance. Um, you know, if you've got ten grand you spend on something, I'm going to spend it on other things than that. <laughs> um, some people feel like they, I've got to have the best this and the best that. I'm like, get one good mic, one good preamp, and go from there. You know, you want to record drums, go to a studio and record drums. I tell this to people, I come here and record drums. I record drums for people all the time. They go home and do songs and then come back here and mix it. Because the other thing is if you're on a budget, you're not going to have 14 mics and preamps sitting around. Um, I'm an engineer. That's what I've got. <laughs> so you show up here and record. You know, people have this strange thing in their mind that you have to be in a studio space to record. And Listen to some of those Zeppelin records we grew up with. Those weren't in studio spaces all the time. You know, it was in a castle because, or 
you can get stuff in those environments that you can't get in a studio. Mm-hmm. You know, there are going to be times when you need to isolate stuff, recording vocals or say guitar. You know, if you're recording guitar in the bathroom, you're going to have to have gobos up where it's going to sound an awful lot like it's in a bathroom. <laughs> uh, but you don't absolutely have to go to a studio to record things. You can get some really awesome results at home. And people get so wrapped up in, well, I don't want it to be too wet or this sounds like this room or that. Listen, I record drums in my living room now regularly and, you know, it always sounds like Zeppelin. I've got, you know, (laughs) I've got soft walls, I've got a hard floor and and a sheetrock ceiling and it makes a certain sound. And then as an engineer, you just figure out how to treat this in terms of compressing it. But I don't EQ it or anything. We come straight out of preamps um, into Pro Tools. And from there, I can do anything with it and shape it into anything I want. As long as you get the mics in the right place and you manage to not distort it, and that's the one thing I say to people, just don't distort it. You can record anything, just don't distort it. Um, Probably one of the hardest things to record at home through an amp is guitar. You know, Um, not everybody knows how to get the sounds. Not everybody understands what they're listening to through the speakers and, you know, how moving a mic an inch back and forth can be. I, I beg people to record with one mic only because if you don't know what you're doing, two mics is super bad news. Um, most people don't understand the concept of phase and time and how that affects what you hear between two mics. If I'm using two mics, you'll always see that they're equidistant from a speaker. I'm not going to have one of them like even six inches away. You're going to start getting some weird hollow phasing effect. And I've shown people who've sent me two and three tracks of guitars how it works. I'll stick up like a, a plug-in on Pro Tools. I think it's called Time Adjuster. And I think Eventide has one too that's like a micro time delay. And how varying it, shifting it, you know, 15, 20 milliseconds can completely change the tone. And I explain this is because this mic was a little further away than the closer mic. You know, phase is more of a time relationship as well that people don't realize. And, you know, the other mistake people make is with drum mics is not understanding how the phase works between them. You can look at them now in Pro Tools. You can line them up any way you like. Um, you know, my old school way is I'll just push a phase button and see if the snare goes away, if it loses the body or something. But it's one of the easiest things to do is just record stuff and just don't distort it. You know, people get down in the mud because they want it to sound like a record. Listen, I've done hundreds of records. They don't sound like a record the second you record them. <laughs> Some days you're going to get lucky. You're going to have a great drummer with a great kit and a great space. And it's like, boom. You know, uh, I've only ever heard that in Nashville where, you know, all the musicians are great. It's true. And, you know, all the equipment they show up with is meant to be recorded. And you just sit down and do a track and it's an enjoyable thing. On the other hand, when you're working with a rock band, you've got to deal with the the band politics and you've got to deal with what's important here. I want to get a bass and drum track. That's what I'm trying to get, you know. Yeah, it's true. And it's funny, too, because one one complaint that I hear a lot about, you know, when people talk about... uh, learning how to engineer online, you know, on things like YouTube or online courses. One of the things that I'll hear people say is, well, those tracks must have been recorded professionally. And so they sounded better to start with. And my tracks don't sound like that. So I want to learn with realistic sounding tracks. But what they don't realize is that often the source tracks had a lot of work done to them after the fact, and that they can actually get source tracks in a home studio that sound just as good as the source tracks at a pro studio. So in many cases, it just comes down to the processing that you're adding after the fact. When, when I'm producing stuff, what I'll do is early on, I'll make composites of stuff. So I'll make an entire drum treatment and I'll record it as a two track. 
it's easier to work off of stems. And, you know, another really important thing, I know when, um, when uh, Nuno and I were talking about doing Extreme 4, which was waiting for the punchline, um, he said he wanted to make this an organic record where Extreme 3 was, you know, as overproduced as a band could be. He said he wanted to make this one more stripped down and organic. So we sat down and talked about this. Um, we were in Studio 8 Criteria when they still had the Neve in it. And we decided that we wanted to do this in such a way that you didn't mess with the drum balance all the time. Because as musicians, you are a slave to what you monitor, what you hear. So what we did was the drums, while I did record them all into separate tracks, I made a two-channel mix of the drums um, on the rear channels on the uh, jukebox section on the Neve and, uh, and recorded that. So basically, all the songs we did at Criteria, the, not the ones Mike Mangini did in Boston, but all the songs we did in Criteria, the drums are in three tracks. These were super easy recalls. They, they weren't more than 12 tracks each song. Um, and what it does is it forces you to always be hearing this as close to finished as possible. So when I make stems for projects I'm producing, it's so that I've got a stereo drum stem and whatever. And everybody plays to that same drum performance and that same drum mix. Now, you know, we go on and mix the song, it's going to change a little bit, but I know that everybody heard the same kind of groove. Because if you're hearing a mix that's kick heavy, and then suddenly the engineer decides it's not going to be like that today, you're going to feel it differently when you're in the control room playing it. And this applies whether you're recording in a studio or at home. Mm -hmm. I always advise people, and they send me files, I'm like, did you work with this like this? Where it's like, <laughs> you know, channel one was kick, channel two was one channel of the guitar, channel three was a background vocal, channel four is half a keyboard track. I'm like, how, how do you manage? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's one of the things I teach people first is this is how you organize stuff. Yeah, you make it sound like a song so it inspires people and it isn't like all imbalanced. Yeah, the P&E wing of of, uh, of uh, Naris has a great white paper on how to do digital sessions. I think Charles Dye wrote it and Eric Schilling, and it explains this perfectly. And the reason and the, and the lineage of this is when we recorded an analog, you put the kick on track one and so on and so forth. Because this way, when you throw up a reel of tape, you could just throw up a reel of tape and go to work. You knew where everything was without even looking at it. So, you know, in Pro Tools, I do the exact same thing. Everything's always the same way, so I know where stuff is. It's like, oh, weird keyboard track? Well, that's in the grouping that has the keyboard tracks. Or it's a vocal track? I know that's at the far end. Um, that stuff, whether you're working at home or in a studio, helps maintain sanity. That thing you and I were talking before we, we started the interview is that, you know, people get bogged down in stuff that they shouldn't. The object of recording at home is so it can be relaxed. And I always say to people, just be organized. This way you can throw a song up anytime you like, and you can find everything. Um, you know, It's important when people send me stuff to mix that I get a rough mix from them because I want to know what they were hearing. Uh, sometimes there's a part in the song that was never meant to be dominant that I'll just fixate on, and I'll base half the mix around it. And it'll be, um, yeah, we weren't sure we were going to use that. And, you know, that like completely changes it for me. Um, you know, I encourage people to take their time and do good roughs. You don't have to, they don't have to be fancy. They don't need a lot of reverb or effects. Um, it's a lot of times simpler than it looks. It's just that problem is that without somebody guiding you and saying, this is okay, this isn't okay. It's hard to tell, mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, we, we got around to this when you were talking about, you know, basically how, you know, getting guitar sounds with Nuno. And that's basically what it is. You, you, you have to remember that your ears are elastic. And this is one of the big mistakes I see people make when they're getting sounds is they'll 
play guitar for 15 minutes listening to one sound and go, all right, well, let's move the mic. It's like, oh, I don't like that because your ear still has that memory <laughs> of the last sound you heard. So true. For me, I always keep records around uh, cds around to just listen to things i like just so i can clear my ear you know it's like that thing when they they serve you some sherbet to cleanse your palate <laughs> it's the same thing except get away from it go listen to some music that you love come back to this yeah yeah it's never going to sound like van hill one i can guarantee you but at least you've got a balance and you can knock yourself out of that space take ear breaks i mean mixing is pretty much all i do every day I will not sit here for an hour straight mixing. I'll work for about 25 minutes. I'll take a break, get a cup of coffee, watch the news, come back and work for another half hour. If I had to sit here for 12 hours straight, I would have even less hair than I already have because I would pull it all out. Um, it's good to get away from it. And sometimes, and this is the beauty of working at home for me. Like I said, I've got the best job in the world. Um, I can stop anytime I like. I can go lay down, go outside. And, and enjoy enjoy the weather. I, my studio is situated so I at least can see outside. That's one of my biggest complaints about studios. It's like being in Vegas. They don't want you to leave. You're just going to die in here. And um, No windows, no nothing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No windows, no clocks. Yep. Lots of money. <laughs> so, um, and taking breaks is really important. Sometimes I'm deep into a mix. Like this morning, I'm working on a mix. It's got, you know, 90 tracks in it. A lot of keyboard layers, a lot of guitar, a lot of backgrounds. And, you know, the producer is amazing. It's perfectly arranged, but there's a lot of stuff. In the back of my mind is I know he knows there's a lot of stuff, and he put this together in a way that I could actually work with it. But because it's so dense, you can get deep, deep into the weeds with it. So you have to stop, get a coffee, go outside. I love that. I think that that's great advice. And, you know, I, I always tell people, like, have reference tracks in your sessions just so, like, you know, every, yeah. like, 10 minutes or whatever, just switch over to a different song. And and it will help you quickly identify if you're following the right path with your own mix. Like, especially mm -hmm. when you, especially, you know, like, going back to what you said earlier about the Pink Floyd thing, right? If a band sounds like Pink Floyd, you use that as your inspiration. Well, have a Pink Floyd track in your in your mix session. And then, you know, as you're working, you're getting used to how your mix sounds currently. And then... You know, you might not realize how far off you are from that Pink Floyd sound now that you've done some messing around exactly. with it. So you exactly. listen to that song, and then all of a sudden your ears are like, oh, wait a minute, that's the thing I'm missing, or I need to do this EQ move or yeah. whatever. And on and every mix on two faders, and I bring them up on an aux return on the console, I've got the band's rough mix that's phase aligned with the track so I can switch back and forth for relative balances. And I've got something that's a reference mix, either something they told me about or something... I feel like I'm just talking about Nickelback, but oddly enough, the band that I was working with was Leaving Eden. They said, we like the way this Nickelback record sounds. So I had that on a fader. So I know, and I know they want something like that, the drum presence and that sort of stuff, as I flip back and forth to it so I can make sure that I'm staying in the lane for what they're looking for. Again, that's how you keep jobs with clients is you make them happy. Totally. It may not be the sound I think is best for it or not, but... The one thing I can do as an engineer is definitely assimilate what people want into my workflow. Um, and that's really important. That's another way people get into the weeds is they don't go listen to stuff. And I understand it can be frustrating or disappointing that you can't do exactly that, but you'd be surprised how close you can get to it, but you got to keep it in your mind. You know? totally. Well, you, you'll never get it exactly like the reference track because you're not working with the same artist, the same gear, the same studio, mm -hmm. and quite frankly, not even on the same day, you know, like it, you could have all of those elements with the same musicians and everything, but the next day they could sound totally different. So, um, exactly. you can't be chasing 
tones in that sense, but you can definitely be looking at your reference tracks to help you with the overall frequency response and, you know, making sure that you've got your levels kind of balanced. So you're, you know, you're hearing a, a good clarity on the, on the drums and, you know, you got enough kick and snare in relation to everything else, all that kind of stuff you can listen to reference tracks to help calibrate your ears with. Exactly. Um, exactly. But yeah, you're not going to get that exact same snare tone or, or guitar tone or whatever, because you're using different stuff. And, and the one thing I say to everybody, Mike, is that I always ask them when they send me a rough mix, what do you monitor on? You know, and they'll say, oh, I've got this and this and says, do you have a subwoofer? No, I don't. I, I think I think that anybody who manufactures a subwoofer now owns me a royalty because I make everybody get them. <laughs> because you need to hear what's down there. It, it makes your life simple. You know, as much as I hate NS10s, you know how great they sound if you stick, stick them with a subwoofer? <laughs> um, um, you know, subwoofers make life better. And they're like, well, how do I calibrate? It says, listen to some music, see what sounds good to you and music that you like. It, and, you know, people get wrapped up in the minutiae that there's so much technical stuff. And yeah, there's some stuff that's going to be important. If your control room's too wet, you, you know, you're going to make, you're going to make um, songs that are too dry. If, you know, if, if there's, if the, you know, you got some weird bass issue in your room, then there's not going to be enough bass or there's going to be too much bass. But, you know, there's workarounds to all of those. When I was in Boston, I would just, you know, people would hire me to go mix stuff at their house. Um, you know, that's how I got started doing this was just, I dragged a Tascam 8-track and my, you know, 78 Pinto all over the place. And I'd show up at somebody's house. We'd set up in their basement. I'd, I'd create a control room out of a bathroom, out of a spare space, or just wear headphones. And we'd start recording. Um, you know, there's not a lot more to it than that. You know, if you're having trouble in the monitoring environment, well, listen headphones, which I'm not a huge fan of, although those slate headphones are pretty freaking cool. You can listen in headphones or monitor softer. You know, if you monitor soft, the room becomes less of an issue. Mm -hmm. Stuff bouncing back at you from the back wall. Um, there's ways to work around everything. It's just trying to get that whole concept in your head. And of course, you know, having a reference to listen to helps put you in the same zone. I know how frustrating it is. I got to listen to references sometimes. I'm like, I can't do that. And, you know, for me, it's not my lack of um, skill. It's lack of what people handed me for music. <laughs> but when somebody says they want something, you, you want to try and get as close to that as possible as you can. Of course. Yeah. And, and I think that that's, uh, that brings up another interesting topic, which is that when you're working with people who have recorded their own tracks at home, you know, there's there's often a lot of challenges that you're going to face with that. You know, especially when someone isn't an engineer themselves. You know, like they they might just have too much gain on their mic preamp, or they maybe have baked in some some processing that you didn't like. All the things we were talking about earlier. There's definitely a bit of surgery that you need to do sometimes to like fix mm -hmm. fix poor tracks. Um, and I'm just curious if you had any tips there, just to for for artists to like avoid all that. I guess you kind of touched on some of it earlier, but just recording without clipping. On, on your preamp, but is there anything else that you'd recommend so that people don't put themselves in a corner and, you know, screw themselves up a little bit? Always, always use as little processing as you can to record it. You can monitor with, you can experiment, distort, saturate, whatever you want in your workstation, but try to give the mixer as clean of a slate as you can. You know, there's caveats to that. If you've got a guitar sound that's like all full of effects and don't expect somebody else to get that. Record it, but send them the dry one. I mean, the guitar, to this day, I always record a direct and a mic, always. Be because, I don't know, my ears may be screwed up one day when I'm getting the sounds, and I listen to it in the morning, like, oh, God, if I just move the mic three inches. and But I've got the direct, you know, and 
you know, you can time align them so they don't phase too badly and you can get some interesting stuff out of that. And more often than not, I'll get the guitar right, but sometimes I'm not going to get it right. And I do it for a living. Um, you know, it's always to try to get as clean of a recording as you can, whether you're going to mix it yourself or hand it off to somebody else to mix. Um, I can fix nearly anything anybody sends me. I have, you know, a lot of skills and a lot of tools for fixing stuff. Um, I just mixed a project for a client from Indiana who, you know, I, I don't know how the drums are recorded. I'm st- I, Seriously, it blew my mind because I can hear a snare in the overhead track, but there's no kick in the overhead track. <laughs> I, I know it was, I know it wasn't, you know, MIDI of some kind or pads of some kind, but the cymbals were clearly real cymbals. So I, I don't know what they did. But, you know, in the end, I'm like, okay, I can work with this. You know, the toms were separated out, so I didn't like the toms, so I use uh, drum Drumagog, which actually triggers sounds directly to MIDI I, with contact, and Abbey Road drums that sound amazing. And, you know, there's always tools for me to fix stuff. I don't expect people to have those tools, but when somebody says they want something, I say, well, what did you picture the sounding like? That's the most important thing is to have a, con- a, a, a conversation with the client to see... Where were you going with this? Because sometimes I'm off the mark, and that really bums me out. I, you know, I've done mixes for people where and you send it to them, and they're like, eh, that isn't at all what we pictured. That's a bad day. <laughs> and, and I say, what is it? And they said, well, you know, you listen to our rough mix, and you know, their, their rough mix sounded like ass, so I've got to, actually got to go back <laughs> in that direction for them. I did a mix for this very, very finicky producer, and he didn't like my mix. He said, well... I like the drums in my rough mix. Did you listen to my rough mix? I said, no, I actually didn't listen to his rough mix. I didn't tell him, but because it was wholly offensive to my ears, there was so much three K <laughs> and it's like, you know, somebody just got their new PSP saturator and they wanted to see how far they could crank it up. And he's like, well, I, I kind of like that sound. It puts a, me as a mixer, as an artist in a difficult situation. So what I ended up doing was using some of my sounds, dialing them back a little bit and I blended in just his drum mix, and he was super happy. Um, that's just finding a way to make that work. People get attached to stuff, and I said to him, I says, what, what are you using for speakers? And I knew the speakers he was using didn't have a lot of 3K in them. They couldn't have, because he'd be deaf with what he sent me. <laughs> if he listened to that for weeks on end. Um, you know, the, the thing is, you have to ultimately make it work. As I said earlier on, it's the artist vision. A lot of the times it's not solely yours. If somebody asks your opinion, you offer your opinion, but that's it, you know, mm-hmm. and they say, oh, that's not what I pictured at all. Then you know what you've got to do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that that's a great place to wrap up because it's it's definitely true. It's like, at the end of the day, we're just helping artists fulfill their vision. And mm-hmm. despite our own personal preferences and all our own knowledge of how we would typically do things, you know, at the end of the day, we're trying to please a, a client and uh, make that vision come to life. So um, I think what you said there is is very accurate. So, uh, Bob, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I, re- I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Mike. If people want to learn more about you, what's the best place for them to do that? Um, you can find me on Facebook. You can go to my website, which is bobstjohn.com. Um, uh, I'm on Twitter occasionally. Um, uh, Facebook is, or, or the website are the easiest way to find me. There's also a Bob St. John producer engineer Facebook page as well. Um, and I'm always willing to entertain anything people want to ask. People are sometimes afraid they're going to ask me some crazy question. I don't mind at all. You know, I came up in a time when a lot of people didn't show you things because everything seemed to be some magical secret. And 
I don't feel there are any secrets. Um, you know, I do regular training sessions with um, engineers and and musicians, um, usually via session wire, and I open their sessions and we go over the sessions together so I can show them what they're doing. And what always thrills me is how close they actually are, but they never had anybody validated for them and say, you're going so in the right direction. Or you could say to somebody, I don't know where you're going with this, and then showing them a better way to get to something that they want. So I do those frequently also, and you just have to write to me and, I'll, and then we'll set up a session for sure. Love it. Yeah, that's great. Mm. Well, awesome. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Mike. So that was my interview with Bob St. John, and I really enjoyed learning more about what went into working with artists like Extreme and Collective Soul and some of the backstories behind that. And I also really enjoyed that he was talking a lot about how with home studios, you can actually get much better results than pro studios. Because, yeah, like I said at the very beginning, you know, a lot of people have this opposite view. And it's funny because after I ended the podcast episode, Bob and I were just chatting and he was saying to me that a significant chunk of the songs and albums that he's been nominated for Grammy Awards with have been made in home studios. So this guy is just living proof that you can absolutely get great results and you shouldn't feel like you need to have super expensive gear around you or be in a massive facility. So um, I really like that Bob focuses on that and leads by example there. So I hope that you were able to take a lot from that episode. And if you enjoyed it and you're new to the podcast, or even if you're not new, but you're not subscribed to the podcast, definitely make sure to subscribe. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. And also make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. That is where I help out musicians with creating pro sounding recordings from their home studios. And if you're looking for someone to help make sense of the recording, editing, and mixing process, so you're not guessing at what you need to do, or you're not feeling unsure of when you're done with your mix or what to do to make the sounds that you hear in your head come out of your speakers. If you're looking for help with that, that is exactly what I can help you with. And that's all available at MasterYourMix.com. And while you're there, if you're looking for a great starting resource, definitely make sure to check out my book. It's called The Mixing Mindset. And inside of that book, I break down the process of mixing step-by-step so that you really have a clear path to follow from beginning to end. So once again, that's called The Mixing Mindset, and that's available at MasterYourMix.com. All right, guys, that is it for this episode. And I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com. Hey,